Welcome back to The Jacobin Show. I'm Jen Pan, uh, here, of course, with Kale Brooks. Kale, how are you? Doing well. Feeling fine. Feeling... It's hot. It's hot. Uh, I everywhere. live in the desert, so yeah. I... How, how are you doing? I get to complain about that. Yeah. Um, I'm also, I mean, it's also hot here. Uh, we've avoided, I think, kind of the brunt of the heat wave that's been overtaking the rest of the nation, um, but it's still hot. Yeah, another another W on the board for <laughs> for the desert, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, Jen, what's going on today? What, what do we have on the on the docket? What do we have on the docket? Uh, We are talking to quite a few people today. Uh, I will be speaking to two journalists. Number one, Matthew Cunningham Cook, who writes for The Lever. I'll be talking talking to him about the uh, ongoing, on-the-sly Medicare privatization that the Biden administration has been pushing for some time. I will also be speaking to Vox reporter Rachel Cohen on some, some 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 good news, actually, some promising new experiments in social housing in the U.S. Uh, excited for that conversation. Yeah, breaking and, on the Jacobin show, we finally have good news. <laughs> right, yeah. We like to sprinkle that in, you know, from time to time. There isn't always a lot, but we have some today. Um, and actually, you are doing a kind of deep cut with a uh, Marxian economist, Dipankar Basu. You'll be mm-hmm. speaking to him about, I really don't know what, but <laughs> I'm sure it'll Marxist be Marxist economics. We're just, Marxist economics, of course. We're going to chill out, talk about Marxist economics, talk about why it rules and why you should all learn it. Um, I mean, I think it'll be, I think it'll be a good one. Um, But before all of that, uh, of course, the big news this week is that it looks like Biden and the Democrats are getting their uh, inflation and spending bill across the line, finally. Uh, So, Kale, what's going on? I know you have some thoughts on that. Yeah, well, so uh, I have a question for you uh, about will this save Biden's ass? Um, But yeah, like you're saying, on Sunday, Democrats finally passed the reconciliation bill. Uh, this was, uh, if, unless you've been under a rock, uh, you should probably know that this has been the culmination of a year and a half of negotiations on Biden's Build Back Better bill, which looked all but dead up until a few weeks ago. Um, but over the course of 2021, the gigantic $6 trillion uh, initial spending bill was eventually whittled down, um, mostly by corporations using a handful of politicians to knock out just about everything that touched any kind of public investment or it was perceived as a threat to corporate profitability. And obviously, by the end of the year, with most of the power drained from the bill, uh, it still wasn't viable for Mansion and Cinema. So now we actually have a bill that actually did pass, and uh, we now have to ask what is in it. Um, I'm sure that's the question on everybody's mind. And luckily, you have us who have read the New York Times debrief. So there is about $370 billion over 10 years in tax credits, much of which is aimed at people purchasing electric vehicles, utilities, and heat pumps. Uh, So in other words, a fairly indirect nudge towards some greater demand for whatever electric green commodities businesses decide to put out in this time. 
Um, some of that money will go directly towards businesses in the form of tax credits to encourage the creation of more solar panels, wind turbines, nuclear generators, and other low-carbon technology. Uh, but at the same time, um, as Matt Huber noted on last week's show, there's also quite a bit of an expansion of fossil fuel drilling provisions. So not really the Green New Deal we were hoping for, but, uh, you know, whatever. You can watch the Matt Huber interview we did. In addition to all that, Medicare can finally negotiate with drug makers on the price of prescription medicine, but this will only apply to about 10 drugs, and this takes effect in 2026 and will expand to other uh, other drugs in subsequent years. Um, there's also a $2,000 cap on out-of-pocket costs on prescription drugs for seniors. Would be great if uh, we lived in a civilized society where like, we didn't actually need to have any out-of-pocket costs for prescription drugs for seniors, but... Yeah, if the cap was $0. <laughs> Yeah, so it's, like, good news compared to, like, some other kind of horrible hellscape, but it's still, like, (laughs) an insane thing to say. It's an insane sentence to read. Um, There's also a $35 per month cap on the price of insulin for people on Medicare. Uh, The language for a $35 per month cap on the price of insulin for people not on Medicare was ripped out, thanks Mm -hmm. to Senator Sinema and others. Um, there's also greater funding for the IRS, which Democrats say is going to crack down on rich people avoiding taxes, and Republicans say we'll crack down on the poor for just trying to get by, basically, um, with our horrible tax code. Uh, and finally, thanks again to our good friend, Senator Sinema. Uh, there's a new 15% corporate minimum tax on the profit companies report to shareholders. This would apply to companies that report more than $1 billion in annual income on their financial statements, but that are also able to use credits, deductions, and other tax treatments to lower their effective tax rates. So in other words, we're not taxing the actual people who pay very little in taxes. Uh, we're kind of, maybe, under certain conditions, going to be taxing businesses, uh, but only you know in a certain way where like they can also just as easily write all this off and basically get their money back so uh again doesn't even touch profitability um jen will this save biden's ass uh well uh i i I feel like your recap of the bill kind of has hinted at uh your your feelings on it and i mostly agree but i will say that i do think that just the act of them finally getting something over the finish line in the very, very short term probably will give them a slight boost. Or maybe another way of putting it is I don't think it could hurt. And the the reason why I think that is obviously because the Democrats, uh, not unjustly, are so often perceived as the party that's weak, that's incompetent, that can't stand up to the Republicans or fight a good fight, and that can't govern well. And so I think that this will be sort of useful in kind of shifting some of those perspectives perceptions, at least in the very, very short term. Uh, Now, over the longer term, uh, I have to admit that I do worry or I I do feel actually pretty certain that this bill won't do anything or won't do much to build the Democratic base or reverse the ongoing and unfortunate and dangerous process of class dealignment, which we've talked about many times before on this show. And uh, my, you know, the reason why I think this is basically all of the strongest provisions for working people, which were in the original bill, uh, things like the child tax credit, things like paid family and sick leave, things like universal pre-K, uh, and, and even things like, you know, like expanding free meals to uh, students, uh, to, you know, grade school students, 
all of those things were stripped from the bill. Uh, that That's basically what this two-year process has been about, taking out all of those things. So you're left with a bill where the signature achievement is kind of these climate provisions, right? And as you mentioned, you know, we have a whole video with Matt Huber on kind of the good and bad of those provisions. Uh, but, but the reason why this concerns me in terms of this bill and in terms of, um, you know, what it portends for the future of the Democratic base is that working class voters consistently say in opinion polls that they prioritize things like the economy, inflation, jobs, health care, climate change. uh, I'm not saying that working class voters aren't concerned about climate change, but when you break down what people's stated priorities are, climate change comes up when you're talking to college educated and more affluent voters, right? So again, in terms of the kind of long term, um, the long term, what this bill will do for Democrats and in terms of shoring up their base uh, in the long run, um, I think, I think, I think it's only going to make the problem of class dealignment worse if it has any effect on it at all. Uh, your thoughts? Right. Well, and and on that point about the about climate change and about like what's actually in the bill, most of the spending is not actual public investment. It's not going right. towards actually uh, transforming our energy systems or creating uh, new you know good jobs that have job mm-hmm. security and like good pay that are yeah. like going towards actually building this all out. It's all at the consumption level. It's all for consumers. So it's if you have the money to buy an electric, uh, like electric guitar, electric car. <laughs> well, that too, I guess. But yeah, uh, there's no subsidy for that in the bill. But <laughs> yeah, this yeah, this machine kills climate change. I don't know, whatever. Yeah. But the car, um, an electric car. You probably like your working class people, even with the the subsidy, the tax subsidy, are probably not going to be. Uh, and also, like, because you have to pay for it initially, and then you get the money back uh, when you do your taxes. So, like, mm-hmm. right. it's not really viable for most working class people. Like, this is not really a climate solution for the vast majority. It's mostly just something that like a middle class strata that has this income to be able to buy these things that green capitalists are putting out there. Uh, they then get a little pat on the back because you did a good job. You, mm-hmm. you did your part to, mm-hmm. to stimulate the green economy. Mm-hmm. And like, that's just not actually really that viable. And also, like, there's nothing in this that says, like, people will, in fact, buy these things. Right. Like, this, like the, the most optimistic uh, estimates say, like, this is going to cut 40% of emissions from the 2005 level. But that's assuming that all these middle class people do the right thing, basically. Mm-hmm. Right. So, like... It's just it's it's weak. It's bad industrial policy because like there's no we were talking about this last week in a different context, but there's no enforcement mechanisms. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I, I want to go back again uh, very quickly to the things that were taken out of the bill, because um, one of them that, that I mentioned was the child tax credit. And, and I do have to mention, in case people didn't see this, Bernie Sanders did fight to add an amendment to the bill to add the child tax credit back in. And like, basically, not just Republicans, Democrats got mad at him, like members of his own party were like, Bernie, what are you doing? Now's not the time. And he was the only senator who voted to, uh, in you know, to, to put that amendment in, uh, which I think is, you know, it is interesting and like shameful, not just because I think the child tax credit, the, the expanded child tax credit is a good thing, which 
obviously I do think, uh, but it's a really popular thing, or it yeah. was. And it it has always baffled me that the Democrats let that slide by. Uh, I know Joe Manchin had, you know, his objections, but Joe Manchin has objections to a lot of things. Uh, and so, again, that's just to say that just to that's just to underscore the fact that, you know, not only not only is the centerpiece of this bill now these climate provisions, which, as you pointed out, like, are they actually transformative? Uh, questionable. But all of the other stuff that would have actually, I think, spoken more to people's bread and butter, working class people's bread and butter concerns were just stripped out. So yeah. anyway, Kale, any, any last... Bernie, didn't you get the, the message that this was only things that business is okay with? <laughs> like, right, yeah. No, I, I think he got it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh yeah, Kale, any last thoughts on 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 the reconciliation bill? I agree with you uh what you said earlier that I think it's it's definitely good for Democrats to show that they got like a win on the board that for once. Like, yeah, for once so like Democrats can actually do something. Um the persistent problem is that like the change isn't coming until in this case 2026. 20, right. So for like the the part of it that most people will probably actually feel um when it, with the, the medicare being able to negotiate prescription drug prices um so i mean i guess the on the one hand there's there's the persistent problem of like you know the left still has to like the democrats are not taking anything from the left right now the the wind is still right. you know like they have the power but we still have like the platform that actually resonates with people and so like we still have to do everything we can to like push that platform forward and, and say like we need to fight for things that are far more ambitious and actually far more reasonable based on like where people's living standards are and the crisis that crises that people are facing right now right all right well uh let's now dive into the rest of the show let's do it all right i'm now here with matthew cunningham cook he is a reporter for the lever matthew great to see you thanks for having me on jen so uh, you've been covering at the lever, among other things, the Biden administration's sort of uh, quiet privatization of Medicare. And yeah. uh, I, I wanted to talk to you about that. Uh, so, you know, this has sort of been going on for quite some time. And I think that it has been uh, rather underreported. So maybe give us a sense of what this kind of privatization scheme uh, looks like so far. And what do you think is behind this push from the Biden administration? Yeah. So for a while, we've had uh, Medicare Advantage, which is yeah. stealth privatization, where the government pays Medicare Advantage insurers effectively higher rates than they pay for uh, traditional Medicare um, and lets insurers enter the market. Uh, but it's all voluntary is Medicare Advantage, even though if some of the sales tactics are aggressive. Um, what we have now is what's called in its latest iteration, ACO reach, uh, which is involuntarily assigning Medicare's to a Medicare Advantage style plan. Uh, and this is a, a big get, uh, because basically any senior who talks to their regular doctor their regular doctor will typically advise against a Medicare Advantage plan mm -hmm. if the patient is a higher use 
patient. Uh, uh, and so that, it, or is at risk of being a higher use patient. So that is a big disincentive for a lot of seniors and means that there's a an effective cap on the amount of folks who will voluntarily sign up for Medicare Advantage. The advantage to the insurance industry and its private equity backers and now Amazon is that ACO reach is a captive market uh, that can be involuntarily assigned to a Medicare Advantage style plan. And it can, the only way to get out of that plan is if you switch your primary care provider, which can be very difficult for anybody, but particularly difficult for senior citizens who are less sophisticated with technology, uh, less experienced in navigating the highly complex healthcare market in the U.S. So it's a really pernicious new development uh, that really only benefits powerful industries like private equity and insurance. And, and we've been covering it at the lever and the, the reporting has gotten a lot of attention, I think, because very few other outlets are doing it, uh, particularly with a zoom out perspective that places Medicare privatization as part of ongoing misconduct in the insurance industry and the aggressive private equity encroachment into all sectors of our economy. And now on top of that, the aggressive encroachment of a fiercely anti-union company, Amazon, Mm -hmm. into this market as well. So what do you think is behind the Biden administration's uh, turn in this direction? Money, basically. the the insurance industry is very powerful. Mm-hmm. They are large donors. The private equity industry is very powerful. They are large donors. We just saw on the Senate floor uh, a a really aggressive amendment to the Inflation Reduction Act that uh, insulates private equity from effectively any new effects of this this corporate minimum tax in the Inflation Reduction Act. So they throw their weight around. They have they have a lot of influence. The former CIO of Carlisle is now the governor of Virginia. Uh, uh, they, the former co-founder of Bain Capital is a senator from Utah, Mitt mm-hmm. Romney. Um, so uh, they have deep, deep relationships in the in on Capitol Hill uh, on both parties. Uh, uh, with them being the largest donors to private equity and hedge funds being the largest donors to both parties as well. Uh, so it, it, it means that going against Medicare privatization at this point is not just about kind of going against, you know, libertarian bullshit ideology. It's going against the financial interests of some very powerful industries. And, you know, speaking of powerful industries, uh, you had mentioned earlier that Amazon has been sort of getting into the Medicare privatization game as well. Um, I know that you have an article uh, for The Lever on that. So what exactly has Amazon been doing uh, in in this realm? And what do you think this means for healthcare in the U.S.? Well, yeah, we just had a lucky break uh, in March where uh, I work with uh, 
uh, Suzanne Gordon at the Veterans Health Policy Institute, who's also a Jacobin contributor uh, on on veterans healthcare issues. And I was talking to her about uh, ACO Reach, uh, and she was like, "I got involuntarily assigned into ACO Reach hmm. by this company called One Medical." Um, and so we wrote about it, and that story was the first story that actually tracked a specific senior's uh, uh, experience with getting involuntarily assigned to an ACO REACH privatization plan. Uh, and then it turns out five months later that Amazon is buying that company, One Medical, uh, mm-hmm. that was initially backed by the Carlisle Group, um, uh, which was, which is a, a major private equity firm. Uh, and there's a lot of real dangers here. Yeah. So there, so folks immediately raised the privacy angle. Yes, real concerns about privacy. Uh, folks raised the the monopoly angle of just Amazon reaching into all sectors of the economy. Uh, I would also add to it uh, two additional components. Uh, the first is an issue we've been covering extensively at the lever as well is uh, Amazon's extreme and egregious violations of labor and occupational safety and health law. Mm-hmm. So that's number one. So Amazon is now benefiting from Medicare privatization under an administration whose president, whose leader, Joe Biden, pledged explicitly on the 2020 campaign trail that federal contract dollars would not go to union busters. Mm-hmm. So that's number one. Number two it is, it is the broad is, is similar, actually, is the broad market power of Amazon, the broad political influence of Amazon, where the founder and chairman owns the Washington Post, the second most read newspaper in the country, putting his weight behind Medicare privatization. Uh, this is, in some ways, you could say it's a Hail Mary for Amazon, because the core, its core profitability in its warehousing and consumer divisions is plummeting. Uh, They actually had their first loss in that sector uh, in something like 50 quarters uh, this most recent quarter. Uh, So Amazon is making a big play for Medicare privatization because it's a stable, captive source of revenue from seniors who have no way out. Mm -hmm. I want to now turn to a kind of, uh, I guess, like broader question about Medicare in general. And, uh, you know, since the 1960s, obviously, Medicare has been kind of a bedrock entitlement in the U.S. And I think much like Social Security, you know, it enjoys enough widespread support at this at this point that uh, most politicians can't just come right out and say, we want to get rid of it. Right. Mm -hmm. So instead, you see uh, kind of what you've been talking about, which is these sort of weird, like partial privatization schemes or like Mm -hmm. private public hybrids. Uh, Mm -hmm. You touched a little bit on this already, but how do you see just, you know, this partial privatization affecting the program and maybe just more broadly, like how do public private partnerships that so many Democrats seem to love, how do they, how, how well do they really work? Yeah. I, I mean, to go back to Suzanne Gordon's work uh, for Jacobin is where they've been, she and her husband, Steve Early have been tracking the growth of privatization and the assault on, on the VA, which mm-hmm. is really, the gold standard, I mean, the VA and the Indian Health Service, which in the latter case has a long history of 
horrible institutional racism. But they're very, those are the, the VA and the Indian Health Service are the only two fully comprehensive healthcare programs in the country where you have doctors and nurses uh, direct uh, directly employed by the government and uh, uh, everything from the insurance to the care provision is in a one-stop shop model. And that's why the assault on the VA is so dangerous. It's the exact same thing for the privatization of Medicare. We have a, a program that we know we need to expand, uh, that expanding it will save countless lives. Uh, and so what's the best way for an industry, for a whole plethora of industries threatened by expansion to stop expansion from being politically viable? It's to undercut Medicare. It's to privatize it. It's to lower the quality of service so that the public get this silly idea of Medicare for all out of their heads. And this is exactly what, uh, uh, Don Cohen has written about in his recent book, The Privatization of Everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's exactly what we've seen from privatization for decades. Robert Poole, the Koch-backed uh, strategist who developed and invented so much of the privatization language that we see today, he's been very explicit about this, uh, about the the goal of privatization being to undermine trust and confidence in the government and allow dividends to emerge to private capitalists. Uh, so what we're seeing is just is is a really significant advancement of this trend, and it's being ratified under a democratic president with a democratic Congress, and that is obviously not good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so let's jump forward to the recent news. Uh, obviously, you know, it, it looks like Joe Biden and the Democrats are about to get their spending bill across the finish line. And um, there, there are a few p- provisions in there that have to do with Medicare. Uh, I think one of the big ones is Medicare, uh, Medicare's ability to negotiate drug prices, right? So uh, I think the final question for you is, does this reconciliation bill, um, do, you, do you think that it fundamentally, you know, will alter the course that Democrats have been taking so far on Medicare? No. <laughs> <laughs> Short and sweet. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I think that really what we need to be doing is, is strategizing for a plan to protect and save Medicare. Uh, and that is going up some very, against some very powerful industries. Um, and I, I think it's, it's a testament, though, that, you know, Jacobin is a place where kind of these broader strategic questions can happen. And you've been publishing some interesting articles lately uh, that I think go at this question of how exactly do we accomplish the types of changes in society that we need, not only to kind of build a socialist project on the one hand, but on the other, just protect what we have right now. Um, And I, I, I appreciate that work you guys are doing. So Thanks so much. Um, All right. Matthew Cunningham Cook, again, is a reporter with The Lever. You can also find his work in Jacobin, and we will link some of that below. Matthew, thanks again for your time. Thanks so much for having me on. All right. So I will be back in a minute with Vox reporter Rachel Cohen. But first, a quick message from our sponsor, Verso Books. Join the Verso Book Club and support the future of radical publishing. Subscribers get every book that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail if you choose a print subscription. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website for as long as you're a subscriber. Join in August and get your first month free. This month's selections are... 
Decolonial Marxism, Essays from the Pan-African Revolution by Walter Rodney, a previously unpublished collection of Rodney's essays on race, colonialism, and Marxism. The Disappearance of Yosef Mengele, a novel by Oliver Guez, a rigorously researched factual novel tracing the angel of death as he flees from international police through South America. Confronting Capitalism, How the World Works and How to Change It by Vivek Chibber, an analysis of the core dynamics of our economy and politics. And Hegemony Now, How Big Tech and Wall Street Won the World and How We Win It Back by Jeremy Gilbert and Alex Williams, a look at how we came to live in a world dominated by big tech and finance. Become a member today at versobooks.com. Right. I'm now here with Rachel Cohen. She is a senior policy reporter over at Vox and the author of a recent article titled How State Governments Are Reimagining American Public Housing. Rachel, good to see you. Good to see you. Thank you for having me. So let's dive into your article. Um, you reported on a couple of pretty interesting sort of public housing experiments that are unfolding at the state and local level in the U.S. right now. Uh, before we get to the specifics of those, though, I want to ask you about kind of the situation of housing in general. So obviously, you know, we are in the midst of an ongoing housing crisis. Uh, Maybe talk a little bit about what you see as driving that crisis and then how you think city and state governments have uh, responded thus far. Yeah, so the housing crisis, which has been building for decades, it's, I'd say it's kind of broken into two things. One, there are not enough homes for people to live in. Like, you know, people, the population is growing. People want to move to certain cities, certain areas. There's not enough places to live. And then and then the second related problem, uh, but not entirely related, is that of the houses that do exist, they're too expensive for people to afford. And so, and, you know, wages aren't going up. This was a problem before inflation. So there's both, like, not enough houses for homes for people to rent or buy who want to, and the people who currently have homes are getting priced out. Um, they can't afford to stay, and they can't. And if they get priced out, they can't find anywhere to go. Um, so this is like a major problem. I think it was maybe easier for people to ex- ignore back when they thought it was just a San Francisco thing or maybe just a New York City thing. But this is like a problem we're seeing all over nationwide. Um, you know, suburbs, rural, even, you know, rural areas have a problem with housing too. So that is, um, I mean, that's a simplified, but like broad strokes when people are talking about the housing crisis, they're like, I can't afford housing. It it is the biggest sort of part of people's budget monthly. Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess, you know, how states and, um, local governments were responding up to this point, there are kind of like housing is very sort of complicated. Like it's complicated in the sense of, and it runs into all these politics about, uh, you know, people, if you, we tell people to get a house to raise generational wealth. And then if you buy, if you build more houses around that, that could, you know, affect how much appreciation that house might one day get. So then people fight it. And there's like, obviously, as I'm sure listeners to this know, just like decades of, people opposing new housing construction um, for all sorts of not-in-my-backyard NIMBY reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sort of just like over time, more and more, you know, opposition to that getting built and, uh, you know, very specifically opposition, um, you know, so much opposition to low-income housing being built, affordable housing for for people who 
you know, there's opposition to low income housing, but there's also opposition to higher income housing, too, Mm -hmm. depending on the area. Um, And I I think it's sort of just like these problems mounted on top of each other over so many years. And now we are in a really big crisis. Right. Uh, so, so let's now turn to public housing. Uh, I think this is really interesting because obviously public housing in the U.S., uh, to say the least, has gotten a bad rap, right? Like we're used to right. thinking of these kind of like, you know, huge, monstrous, ugly buildings, the projects, so to speak, that are in disrepair and, you know, are very heavily stigmatized. And what's interesting about some of the um, some of the new public housing projects that you've been reporting on is that it seems like some cities are now actually experimenting with investing in what we might call like more European style social housing, right? So um, maybe talk a little bit now about what some of those programs look like. What are what are these cities doing? Yeah, and you know, I think it's like really worth just noting like there's no reason that American public housing has to look or well, there is a reason now, but like in theory, the reason that American public housing has this terrible reputation and we have all the stigma is largely because of rules that Congress passed that has crippled the way that we can build it and the way the kinds of construction materials that could be used, the composition of tenants. Like there were sort of rules about sort of slum clearance to new units. And and uh, part of the reason that, um, you know, public housing and social housing in other countries looks different is because they're not, you know, restricted in the way that Congress has restricted federal public housing. So it's kind of exciting about this state and local public housing is they are able to build rules outside of the rules governing the federal program. And the federal program has basically been the only player in town for, you know, almost a hundred years. And, uh, and so I think it's like, I, if you look at sort of render one of the, one of the places I talk about in my story is Montgomery County, Maryland. And I was looking through kind of some of the renderings of the projects that they have under construction and like, I would definitely live in them. They look really nice. They're next to, you know, transit stations. They have like indoor, you know, facilities and and really nice units. And I think, you know, if we think about um, public schools, like the there's huge variation in, in the quality of a facility of a public school, depending on, you know, the community. I mean, like I, I sort of go back and forth. I think the social housing thing is is an interesting question, because on the one hand, Advocates for social housing say like it in the U.S. because it can help differentiate it from this more stigmatized American style public housing, which is sort of lower quality, often seen as unsafe or dirty or segregated or income restricted. And social housing can signal this like nicer quality, mixed income, uh, like more more aesthetically pleasing building. Um, but sometimes I worry we're like seeding too much about, you know, because it is still public housing. It would mm-hmm. still be publicly owned. Um, and right. I, I don't, I don't have like strong, I'm not like, su- I don't have strong feelings. Like I don't, if it's the thing that's most likely going to get it done, sure. Call it social housing. But, you know, um, I think it is a really sort of an example of the public sector sort of stepping up and like right. flexing its muscles in a good way. Right. Yeah. I mean, I want to stay on that question because as you had alluded to, you know, housing in the U.S. historically has sort of been the purview of the federal government. And it's now really interesting that you see these states and cities sort of stepping up to fund these types of projects. Right. So um, how did this come about? And do yeah. you think this is a sustainable model? Um, so and I guess just to, just on that quick point, so the federal government actually only started getting involved 
in housing. Um, there was sort of pressure building up in the 20s and then the New Deal and sort of going on from the New Deal is when they stepped up. And that kind of uh, HUD was created. The Federal Department of Housing was created in the 60s. Um, and the Federal Low Income Housing Tax Credit, which is sort of now the biggest program to fund affordable housing, was in the 80s. So this was like they stepped up and then everyone kind of retreated back. But there's no reason other than like, I mean, there are reasons that they might have wanted to step back, but they can certainly step up even though they have retreated over the last decade, a uh, century. Right. Um, and so I think there's some things about this model that are is really interesting. I went into the reporting thinking like, okay, you know, I've read, including at Jacobin, like I've read, I've been familiar with the Red Vienna model for a long time. Um, it sounds amazing. I would read about it and be like, oh, but it will never work here. Like there's so many reasons why that won't work here because mm-hmm. there's so many things that don't seem like we can just it over. And what was really interesting to me was sort of how I think these states and local governments are figuring out how to make it work, even in the context of this country with our sort of like strong values of home ownership, whatever, um, and our less generous welfare states. Like they are finding models that, um, you know, to, to this point, When we've constructed affordable housing, it's basically been just throwing massive amounts of subsidies at a project and making and then uh, and and so there's like which, again, I don't think we should stop doing. But there's sort of been reasons why governments have have felt like more conflicted about it with this model. They're finding, oh, we can like actually put a little bit of money and then sort of leverage that in ways. And then we would actually be reclaiming the value from this property that we can get from like higher income tenants to subsidize the lower income tenants over time. And and then we're going to end up with a lot more money down the line that we even started with to build even more housing for more people. Um, So I I don't know if that's a very good explanation. That's sort of a very rough thing, but I guess the I think states are starting to recognize their own self-interest in this model. Like, oh, we can actually house our residents. We can step up and do a better job of of solving this homelessness crisis, this housing crisis, and the suffering. And we can probably do it without basically giving all these money to Wall Street investors and real estate investors in Texas who come in and, and have typically kind of shouldered the construction and, like, reaped the profits of these Mm -hmm. deals, affordable housing deals. Yeah. I mean, well, I actually wanted to end with a question uh, on the the private sector, um, because, you know, you you don't get into this much in your piece, but I'm just wondering whether you see, you know, an expansion of public housing in the future, uh, thanks to these, you know, new experiments. Uh, or or do you see the private sector, you know, private Mm -hmm. investors and the real estate industry um, kind of coming together to oppose that? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that there is, I mean, we don't really know yet how they will fight it. Um, There are sort of examples where this could work, where like private developers still build the housing, but it's owned by the government. So like, you know, there's probably some private companies who still see a win-win for them. Like, okay, maybe I won't like reap the profits 20 years down the line, but I can like be hired to do a service now. Um, 
the real estate industry is the, is the, not to like, sometimes there aren't bad villains. I think it's very like, I think in this case, in this case there's one. (laughs) Yeah. The real estate industry absolutely fought to weaken the original public housing bill in Congress Mm -hmm. and made it worse. And a lot of the reasons that public housing is so troubled today, I think really can be traced back to their lobbying um, and continued lobbying over time. So I think it's a great question. Something that we need to like kind of be watching how they respond. I haven't seen clear examples yet of yeah. what they're doing. They they might not even have really realized it's happening either. <laughs> right. <laughs> to be continued. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, Rachel Cohen, again, is a policy reporter at Vox, and we will link her recent piece down below. Rachel, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, Great to thank see you. you. Great to see you, too. Thanks a lot. So I am now joined by Deepankar Basu, Deepankar is an associate professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He's a contributor to Catalyst Journal with his essay from Nehru to Modi, which I highly recommend. And more recently, he's the author of the book, The Logic of Capital, An Introduction to Marxist Economic Theory, out now from Cambridge University Press. Thank you so much for joining me, Deepankar. Thank you for having me. Uh, so just to jump right into it, um, there exists out there some fairly absurd characterizations of Marx and Marxian economics, like that it's all just about capitalism's impending implosion, or that every explanation is just class struggle. Everything going on in the world to a Marxist is just vulgar class struggle. Uh, So since your new book is an introduction to Marxist economic theory, can you maybe begin by describing what's truly distinctive about Marxist economics compared to other economic traditions? Yeah. Uh, I think there are at least three distinctive elements of Marxist economics. One, Marxist economics locates the study of capitalism in the broad, uh, in the broad uh, flow of history. Mm-hmm. So it understands capitalism as one form of organizing social production. And it also sees capitalism as a class-divided society, just like feudalism, Uh, slave-based societies. So therefore, the first distinctive characteristic of Marxist economics is that it tries to understand how uh, the class-divided society of capitalism gives rise to and is based on exploitation. Mm -hmm. So the focus on exploitation is one of the key uh, distinctive features. There are two more distinctive features, I would say. First, the the, the the second one is that uh, Marxist economics looks at capitalism as a contradictory system. So this f- comes right from Marx's work, where Marx both highlights the positive aspect of capitalism in comparison to previous uh, modes of production, but it also highlights the fact that the positive aspect, which creates enormous wealth and which can if distributed properly, uh, address the needs of majority of the population, that is not happening due to the way the relationships of capitalism are organized. So there is that contradictory aspect. It, it increases the productivity of labor and makes possible enormous wealth creation. But then, because it is motivated by generating profit and not satisfying need, it does not end up satisfying the social needs of that system. Mm-hmm. So, 
so those two are are really the the key distinctive elements and the third distinctive element i would say which really sets it apart from all other economic traditions is the focus on crisis so uh, marx's analysis of capitalism always highlighted that capitalism is a crisis prone system mm-hmm. so even though there are periods when it seems to be doing okay there is if we look beneath underneath the, the surface a crisis tendency maturing which will almost inevitably explode into a crisis so if we look at the history of capitalism every 3 4 decades it is a caught in a deep crisis so that was also one of the key features of uh, marxist economics right right and that's different than like i was saying this kind of characterization that you know marx is just predicting it's it's all about a prediction of just the 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 final culminating collapse and and finality of the system um that his his actual project is largely trying to explain the the real social mechanisms that generate those crises uh, yeah so- right I, i mean you raise a very important point and i think it's worth highlighting that in marx's writing you never find uh something like a final demise of capitalism so yeah. there are there is a rich discussion of various tendencies which lead capitalism to a crisis but then how the crisis is resolved and what will emerge from that is not something which is predicted it can only emerge as the result of social action by by large groups of people right so Your book is obviously not the first introduction to Marxist economics. Um hopefully people are familiar with some of the other brilliant and worthwhile books out there such as Paul Sweezy's The Theory of Capitalist Development, Duncan Foley's Understanding Capital, uh and much of Ernest Mandel's uh large volume of work was also devoted to uh trying to make sense of Marxist economics for most ordinary people. Um but unlike these others you structure much of your book in the same logical progression as Marx structured his work through the volumes of capital can you maybe explain uh how Marx's full argument is structured uh and for instance why it's organized in a way that's not exactly historical but develops the the social phenomena of capital right yes yes i think that that's a important thing to understand so Marx had toyed with this idea of writing a, a magnum opus about the dynamic dynamics of capitalism for a long time and as he was working out the material he was also understanding how best to pre- present his his research the results of his research to his audience and between 1857 58 when he really seriously started writing this work and 1865 when he had more or less completed some some first drafts we see marx going through several uh, different ways of organizing the work and presenting the work what finally emerged as the three volumes of capital come from i think two important ideas that marx realized one he realized after his his almost decade long study of uh, the the capitalist system that the focus of his book of his work would be on capital mm-hmm. and by capital he meant a system where 
sums of money come to the market purchase commodities produce some commodities with the purchase commodities and one of the important commodities being labor power and then at the end sell those commodities which have been produced for more money so it is a system which is organized around the need to generate more money by investing money and this process of what marx calls value begetting more value or value in motion is is what marx understand by the word capital and marx's understanding was that capitalism is a system which is a, a, a representation of this dynamic of this logic of this need and therefore the central concept that he wanted to study in his book would be capital so that right. was the first thing the second thing followed from his is understanding that if he wanted to present to his readers an analysis of the logic of capital then it must not follow the historical trajectory in which capitalism emerged but it must follow the logic of the concepts that are necessary to understand the social structure and dynamics of capitalism as it existed during marx's time so that's why he did not really present a historical narrative but he mm-hmm. presented a conceptual structure moreover the conceptual structure that he presented was organized in what marx called different levels of abstraction mm-hmm. so just like any other scientist social science also abstracts from various uh, peripheral aspects of a phenomenon and tries to hone down and to come to the basic thing that is that is that is comprising a system's logic and that is what marx wanted to do in the first level of abstraction that he called uh, capital in general mm-hmm. so there he wanted to understand the pure interaction between the two elements that comprise capital so on the one hand capital or money on the other hand labor and the interaction of the two how it gives rise to various tendencies that we see in in capitalism so volume 1 and 2 of capital is organized at this high level of abstraction what marx abstracts from in 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 this uh, high level of abstraction are two things one the fact that in capitalism there is not one block of capital but individual capitals who compete amongst each other so the fact of competition he abstracted from that and second that in capitalism there is the phenomenon of credit so whereby banks can make credit available to capitalists can make credit available to to households so those two phenomena marx abstracted from when he was uh, presenting his analysis of the pure logic of the interaction between capital and labor in volume 1 and 2 and then in volume 3 of capital he brings these things we had which he had abstracted from back into the analysis and thereby as we go through the three volumes of capital toward by the end we have by by the time we have reached the end of volume 3 we have understood the logic of capital at a very abstract level but then also have understood how it operates when it is brought down to lower levels of abstraction where competition between capitalists and the phenomenon of credit also play some important roles
Right. That's and and like I said a moment earlier, you also structure your book in the same way that you are walking through like the title of your book very aptly says the actual logic of capital, meaning in part the 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 logic of the the work itself of Marx's work, but also of how that social phenomena actually then plays out getting from the most abstract into the more concrete uh that we, you know, expand even though even by the end of volume 3 it's still fairly abstract but um but anyways um i think it's probably worth maybe just kind of jumping into that analysis and maybe walking through some of it um again i think uh maybe the most you've already you've already mentioned this but maybe one of the most um kind of other distinctive features uh, of marx's work is uh value theory or at least it's kind of chalked up to be um, and there's a lot that's been said about value theory, and it's unfortunate uh, that we don't really have enough time to go into all of the nuances and disputes. Um, there's been a lot of writing that's been written over the last 150 years on on this, but um, could you maybe just explain the basics of Marx's labor theory of value? And then after that, maybe distinguish between uh, what you, you make this distinction in your book between a Marxian objective theory of value versus the more mainstream economic subjective theory of value. Right. Yeah. So the question of value is really central to economic thinking, and it has been there from from very long time. And uh, it really starts with a simple phenomenon. So if we observe the world of commodities where things are bought and sold, we realize that in the market, one commodity exchanges in a particular ratio for another commodity. So for instance, let's say the price of a table is $40 and the price of a shirt is $20. That effectively means that two shirts can be exchanged for a table. Mm -hmm. So this form of exchange of one commodity for another has been there in existence for a very long time. And people have asked, economic theorists have asked, what underlies this phenomenon of exchange? The question of value is really an answer to this question. What can account for the phenomenon of exchange? And in the history of economic thinking, we see two broad approaches. One is the subjective approach, which is the approach of neoclassical economics, which started graining ground from the 1870s onwards. And then there is an older tradition going back to the writings of Adam Smith, David Ricardo, Karl Marx, which thinks of this or which provides an answer to this question, which is very different. So the answer that is given by the classical economists of Ricardo, uh, Smith and Marx is that what can explain the phenomenon of exchange and what can thereby account for the value of commodities is the amount of labor that has gone into producing commodities. So that is the, the tradi- tradition's answer as, uh, which emerges as the labor theory of value. On the other hand, the neoclassical tradition, which started gaining prominence from about 1870s, answers the same question by looking at uh, what it calls utility. Mm -hmm. So the answer it provides is that commodities exchange with one another in a particular ratio because different commodities provide different levels of utility to the person who wants to purchase it. Now, utility, 
or usefulness was of course recognized by the classical thinkers, uh, Smith, Ricardo, and Marx, as one aspect of a commodity. Mm. But they also realized that there is an, another aspect of the commodity, which is the fact that they can be exchanged one with the other. And thereby, when they say that what can account for the fact of exchange is not utility or usefulness, they want to give an objective theory of value. And thereby, they look at the process of production and at the amount of labor that has gone into producing commodities the relative amounts, thereby their, their answer is that the relative amounts of labors that have been, that have gone into producing commodities can account for exchange, both its qualitative features and its quantitative features. So that's why it is different from the answer of the neoclassical economists who rely on utility or usefulness, which is after all a subjective feature because how much usefulness or utility I derive from a particular commodity's consumption really rests on myself. It depends on, on my surroundings, on my state of being, whether I'm happy, whether it's raining. So the same, same ice cream that I, I consume will give me different amounts of utility depending on whether it's a very hot day or it's a cold day. So therefore, Utility is really a subjective phenomenon and therefore the, the theory of value that derives from utility is a subjective theory of value. On the other hand, the theory of value that derives from the amount of labor that has gone into producing a commodity is an objective theory of value because production is an objective fact and labor going into production and the amount of labor going into producing different commodities is an objective fact. Of course, it is a, a, a different question how we measure that value. And it might be the case that in some cases, measuring precisely the amount of value, that amount of labor that has gone into producing a commodity might be difficult. But nonetheless, it's, a, it's an objective theory of value. Now, I would like to just add one more thing. So... Mm -hmm. The labor theory of value, which asserts that commodities have value because and to the extent they have absorbed some productive labor of society, was something that Marx took from the classical economists. But he then brought in more nuances. So he asked, OK, can we say something more about the labor that has gone into producing commodities and that can thereby give rise to value? And there he brought in the concept of abstract labor. Mm. And he said that abstract labor rather than concrete labor gives rise to the value of a commodity. The, he also brought in the concept of socially necessary labor. So he says that at any given point in time, given the technology of production and the intensity of work, the amount of labor needed to produce one unit of any commodity will be more or less fixed. And that is what he calls the socially necessary labor required to produce the commodity. And so he says, when we think about value, we have to think about the social context, the given technology and intensity of work, which will then de define how much labor is needed. So to emphasize that, he brought in the concept of socially necessary labor. And finally, 
he was aware that we cannot just compare one unit of a skill, one hour of a skilled labor's hour, uh, labor, a skilled worker's labor, with one hour of an unskilled labor, uh, unskilled worker's labor. So he he was aware of this, and he therefore pointed out that there must be a conceptual way to make sure that we convert units of complex labor into units of simple labor. So along with socially necessary labor, abstract labor, and the reduction of complex to simple labor, once we have worked out these three concepts, we have a very solid foundation coming from the writings of Marx for a labor theory of value. Right. Yeah, I think that's a very clear explanation of that. And I think in some ways it's it's fairly intuitive insofar as as long as people get wrap their heads around the fact that it's a social concept, that it's socially determined, and the fact that what you produce, the value is largely determined by the social context of uh, in which it's produced and in which it is now competing against other people producing the same thing, that entering into that, the fact that it's something produced for the market, for uh, for sale on the market, rather than just something you produce for yourself or for a family member or someone else that you personally or privately consume or enjoy, uh, that it's it's the social process that's actually largely what is kind of undermining and what like um, or undergirding rather is <laughs> it's actually undergirding and that makes sense of this this analysis that it, that and what makes it a social analysis as opposed to uh, and therefore also objective even though it's it's social it's still objective even though it's um, you know uh, and there's been a lot of literature and part of your book goes into like how how to actually measure uh value and so i don't think we want to touch on that just right now it's for maybe another time um and if people want to i don't know really lose their mind they can go down a, a very a long list of of writing on that but um i think i think how you've outlined it i think hopefully makes intuitive sense um and it leads right into kind of the next major important concept, maybe the most important concept within volume one of capital, which is uh, surplus value. Um, that uh, this is, um, I mean, most of the book is just devoted, this like thousand page book uh, is devoted to explaining the emergence of surplus value. And then ultimately it's important, it's importance in the process of capital accumulation. Um, I think it's probably safe to assume that most people who've tried to read Marx probably have stopped at volume one, maybe not even finishing volume one. That's okay. So most people probably come across the concept of surplus value um, if they're familiar with Marx, but maybe they don't fully appreciate the central role of, of this concept. So could you maybe just explain the significance of the concept of surplus value uh, to Marx and to the overall analysis? Yeah, yeah. I think I think there are there are two ways in which the concept of surplus value is really significant for Marx. The first is that uh, Marx located his economic analysis in the broader understanding of history, what he calls the material materialist conception of history or historical materialism. So in the materialist conception of history, capitalism is understood as one other form of class-divided society. Now, in class-divided society, there is the appropriation of labor effort of one class by the another. That was the central way in which the phenomenon of exploitation uh, was understood by Marx. 
So Marx wanted to clearly understand and explain to his readers how the phenomenon of exploitation operates in a class-divided society. Now, it is important to understand that Marx was kind of juxtaposing the understanding of exploitation in, in feudalism, which was very easy to understand because it was transparent, to a much more complex way in which the same phenomenon, according to Marx, was operating in capitalism. So in feudalism, to, to give a very simple analysis, the Lord enforced that the serf would work for four days a week on the Lord's land and three days the serf would work on his or her own land. So thereby, four-sevenths of the time of the serf was immediately appropriated by the Lord. So the fact of exploitation whereby the Lord appropriated the fruits of labor of the serf was transparent. It was Marx's claim that the same phenomenon was happening in capitalism. But what was obscuring this was the fact that it was all mediated through the market process and the fact of exchange. So in capitalism, the working class was selling its ability to work to a capitalist for a wage. Marx wanted to show that when the capitalist used the labor power that he or she had purchased and produced a commodity and then sold it in the market, in the process, the capitalist was able to appropriate more value than the capitalist paid to the worker in the form of the wage. Mm -hmm. So this difference, which was essentially what emerged as the profit of the whole capitalist class, is what Marx understood as surplus value. So this was one of the important or, or probably the most important aspect of the concept of surplus value because by demonstrating in a rigorous way that a market-based exchange system can also give rise to the emergence and appropriation of surplus value by by of of one class by another, in, in this case, appropriation of surplus value by the capitalist class from the working class, Marx demonstrated in a rigorous way that capitalism was also based on exploitation of one class by the other, just like previous class-based societies was. So that was the first point. Mm -hmm. The second point was that Marx understood that the generation realization and distribution of surplus value was the primary dynamic of the capitalist system looked at from a macro perspective. Mm -hmm. So capitalism was about making profits. The source of profit was surplus value. And that is why what the capitalist class did with the surplus value that it realized as profit directly had an implication on how the system would evolve over time. And it, Marx also analyzed that crisis tendencies that we talked about in the early part, the crisis tendencies that emerge in the capitalist system is also related to either the generation of surplus value or the realization of surplus value. Mm -hmm. So surplus value therefore had both roles. One, 
it emphasized that capitalism was a class divided society and therefore it rested on the exploitation of workers by the capitalists in the sense that the working classes value creation part of it was taken away by the the capitalist class without giving anything in return and second that the dynamics of the system including its crisis tendencies emerged from these two domains one where surplus value was generated and another where it was realized through the sale of commodities right so the in capital volume 1 um which should be noted that it's really the only volume of capital that Marx properly finished uh it comes to this pretty great crescendo towards the end where uh he's describing the process of accumulation um and this is of course the central dynamic of capitalist development and growth um and Marx like like you're uh, alluding to says a lot more about it in the next two volumes as well um but just sticking to volume 1 for a second uh can you explain what capital accumulation means for Marx and and then coming out of that because they're uh linked what his theory of persistent unemployment is yes so as as i said uh, an abstract way to understand a capitalist society is to start with a capitalist or the capitalist class entering the market with a sum of money using those sums of money to purchase two kinds of commodities labor power that is the ability to work and all other non labor inputs that are used in production then we travel with the capitalist into the factory where the capitalist brings these two elements together and once they are brought together the commodity is produced then the capitalist returns to the market once again now not as a buyer but as a seller because he has finished commodities with himself so then he sells it now in the process the capitalist ends up with more money than he started with and this extra amount of money is the monetary expression of surplus value that is the part of the unpaid labor time of the workers who actually produce the commodities now once we understand this and marx spend lot of time trying to explain this in the initial uh, volumes of capital almost the first 20 chapters then marx asked the question what does the capitalist do with this extra amount of money that he has managed to extract from the working class the unpaid labor time of working class mm-hmm. and marx's answer is that the mo- the majority or the most of the surplus value that has been realized is plowed back into the production process to generate more surplus value so surplus value has been created and that is replowed back into the production process which will generate more surplus value and at the end of another cycle it will again be reinvested so as to generate more surplus value so the reinvestment of surplus value into the production process with the aim of generating more surplus value is what marx calls accumulation of capital now the process of accumulation of capital gives rise to a seeming puzzle so let's say the capitalists invest all their profits back into production so the what will happen the scale of production will rise the demand for labor power will rise and if this keeps happening over many many quarters and years 
the demand for labor will ultimately out outlast or, or outstrip the supply of labor power. Once that happens, the real wage that is earned by the working class will start going up. And if that keeps going up, it will ultimately start eating into the profits. Mm -hmm. And if this is not checked, then this will lead in the extreme case to profits becoming zero. So, of course, this leads to a puzzle because the capitalist system is geared towards generating profits. And if the internal dynamic of the system is leading us to a situation where profits will become zero, then this shows up a deeply contradictory uh, dynamic hidden within capitalism. So Marx asks, is there a mechanism available to capitalism to make sure that the demand for labor power does not rise to the extent that it starts eating into profits and in the extreme push down profits to zero? And Marx's answer is yes. And the mechanism that he he talks about is what he calls the reserve army of labor or the relative surplus population. Mm -hmm. So the reserve army of labor is the fraction of the working class, which is, which is not currently employed by capitalist firms, but which is potentially available to be employed when necessary. And Marx points out that there we can understand the reserve army of labor as being composed of three parts. One, which he calls the floating reserve army of labor. So this is the, the part of the working class which uh, moves between employment and unemployment. Sometimes they are employed and then when there is a recession or a firm closes down, they are laid off and they are unemployed. So this is a floating part of the reserve army of labor, which constantly moves between employment and unemployment. Then there is a second big element of the reserve army of labor, which Marx calls the latent reserve army. So this is the fragment of the working class, which has not yet been tapped on by, by, by the, the capitalist system, but which is potentially available. Mm -hmm. And here he really has two important demographic segments in mind. One, uh, peasant producers. So peasants who own small plots of land and who are able to generate enough income so as to not really come all the way to the market to sell their ability to work. So that is a big fragment. And the second is domestic labor, uh, largely women who for a long period of time large parts of women were outside the labor force. So Marx calls this, this segment the latent reserve army of labor, which can be drawn on by capital if needed. And the third segment is the stagnant pool or the stagnant reserve army of labor. These are the, the, the part of the working class which has really fallen out of the system, which are workers who have either lost their skills or have, uh, for various reasons, uh, stopped looking for work. So all of these together comprise what Marx calls the reserve army of labor. Mm -hmm. And in chapter 25 of, of volume one, Marx gives this fantastic analysis where he argues and demonstrates that fluctuations of the reserve army of labor is the primary mechanism which keeps the real wage movement in check mm -hmm. 
and make sure that real wages do not rise to an extent which will completely wipe out profit. And this was, was a, a really a very important and revolutionary concept because it highlighted that the fact of unemployment is inbuilt into the capitalist system. Mm-hmm. So while it is possible for capitalism to solve the problem of unemployment for short periods of time, over long stretches of time, unemployment as a feature of capitalism is going to be there because if that mechanism is not available, then capitalism will be in, in jeopardy because there will be no mechanism available to make sure that wages do not rise to the extent that is necessary to keep profits not from falling to zero. Right. I Yeah, that, I think that's critical. And it's we probably don't have enough time to go into many of the implications, but um, politically minded people should obviously recognize the like implications of, of like agreeing to this analysis that uh, that per- unemployment is a persistent phenomena in capitalism and that it's derivative of accumulation, that it's something that comes out of the like the the, the you know, the heart of the logic of of capitalism. Um, and so when we think about, um, you know, various social democratic proposals, um, when it comes to, uh, you know, the history of efforts uh, to create full employment um, and many of the the walls that that ran into um, at key historical junctures and kind of the, um, you know, we think of like the failure of Keynesianism, I should put that in scare quotes, but just like the, the Keynesianism not having an explanation critically in the in the 1970s uh, to what was going on with stagflation. Um, we might be relevant to study right now. I don't know, you know, just for you guys out there to check that out. But um, anyways, it's it is like super important, I think. And I'm just overemphasizing the point that you've already made about um, this critical link and, and the fact that it is accumulation that is driving this um, and not either. Um, it's not the sometimes the explanation that you'll hear is that it's workers just asking for too much. Um, that is what ultimately uh, leads to stagnation, cap, you know, capitalism stagnating and, and going into a crisis or a recession, a depression, something like that. Um, when in fact, Marx is saying, you know, and he was a lifelong, he was a political revolutionary his whole life. He's, you know, he spent his time, uh, probably a lot more of his later life, instead of writing this book, actually like contributing to working class political movements. Uh, at the same time, he was saying, look, there's actual inbuilt mechanisms and limits to, uh, to you know, pushing for, for higher wages. That doesn't mean you don't do it, but that you have to find a political solution to deal with these certain objective economic uh, structures that are that are inextricable from capitalism. So for most people, that's where the story ends because they don't read past volume one. And it's really unfortunate because uh, there's actually some, uh, there's a lot of Marxism, there's a lot of Marxian analysis that is essential to the, the larger argument and the larger uh, theory and analysis that comes in volumes two and three. Uh, I think it's worth, uh, you know, going into volume two for just a second. Um, they, it gets a bad rap for not being Marx's sexiest contribution. Um, but I, among others, I'm sure, uh, think it's a vital part of the analysis. Um, and there's a lot that can be said and has been said about the schemes of reproduction, which is its kind of central uh, uh, feature towards the end of, of volume two. But 
Um, and I don't think we can go into them in too much depth, but could you maybe explain uh, both the importance of circulation and realization of surplus value, as well as um, maybe, again, in maybe a broad sense, how Marx understands economic growth within capitalism um, as something that's nearly ever present, but prone to disruptions, hangups, discontinuities, and like we've been talking about, even pretty regular collapses and crises. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So, um, so le let's go back, step back a little. So, mm -hmm. in Volume One of uh, Capital, Marx's question is to understand how surplus value is re generated mm -hmm. and what the capitalist class does with that surplus value. So, one part is to explain how surplus value is generated. Another part is the accumulation of capital, which is when that surplus value is reinvested what happens. Now, in doing this analysis, Marx had abstracted from an important question, which is the following. Surplus value can only be realized and become part of the capitalists, uh, capitalist pool of money only when the commodities that have been produced with the labor is sold in the market at an adequate price. Mm -hmm. So the question that how does the surplus value end up with the capitalist is important and Marx had abstracted from that in volume one. Mm -hmm. So in volume two, he comes back to that question. The question whereby he asks, how is it that the capitalist system is able to produce a lot of commodities and then to make sure that all those commodities are purchased at the prices that are necessary to realize all the value. Now, Marx provides an answer to this at kind of two, two levels. At the aggregate level, the main thing he wants to point to us is that when we look at the bundle of commodities that have been produced in a country, in a capitalist country, in a period of time, let's say in a year, we will realize that all those commodities will be purchased either by the capitalist class or by the working class. Roughly, if we kind of uh, abstract from the state for the, for the part and abstract from international trade for, for the moment. So the capitalist class will purchase from each other parts of what they have produced as inputs that they will use in their production process. So part of it, the capitalist will directly purchase one from the other. The other part, they, which will be purchased by the working class, is also ultimately driven by the purchases of the capitalist class. Why? Because the capitalist class decides how much labor to employ. When labor is employed, workers get wage income. With those wage income, the cap work workers go out and purchase commodities for their consumption need. So ultimately, it is the, the, the decision of capitalists to invest how much they want to produce, how much commodities they want to produce, which ultimately will determine whether all the commodities that have been produced will be bought. So that is something which was later also highlighted by uh, another economist, Mikhail Kaleski. But mm -hmm. Marx already understood this and highlighted in volume, volume one. So to come back to 
the question from this first aggregate perspective. In the aggregate, if we look at a capitalist economy, the capitalist economy will be able to purchase everything that it produces at the right price to generate and to, to realize all the surplus value is if the capitalist class is willing to make an adequate amount of investment. Mm -hmm. So therefore, from Marx's perspective, it was crucial and important to, to come up and with and develop a good, solid theory of capitalist investment. Now, Marx did not complete that project in volume two. And I think Marxist scholars need to uh, work on this. It is, it is a project which still needs a lot of work. The second perspective from which that same question Marx tried to attack was to uh, understand what, uh, what happens when we think of the economy as being divided into departments, what he called departments. And broadly, let's say there are two departments. One department produces machines. Another department produces consumption goods. Now, it is once we think about it a little, it is obvious that the aggregate capitalist economy as divided into these two departments will be able to produce and sell everything it, it produces only if there is a proportionality between how many machines are produced and how many cotton shirts are produced. Mm -hmm. So there has to be a proportionality between machines and consumption goods. You cannot produce too much of either because otherwise there will be a glut. And the reason is that a lot of the machines which are being produced will be purchased by the capitalists in the production who are currently engaged in producing consumption goods. And a lot of the consumption goods that are being produced will be purchased not only by the workers in the consumption goods factories, but by workers in the machine goods factories. And so there is an interdependence between the two sectors. And that is why Marx emphasized through what uh, is known as the reproduction schemes that if the capitalist system is to reproduce smoothly over time, where it gets caught neither in a pro problem of too much demand or too little demand, it must produce uh, consumption goods and producer goods in, uh, in some proportionality and we we can actually be more precise and work out the algebra and and show that there is a specific ratio in which these two departments must be uh, present for the system to smoothly reproduce itself over time now from there we directly come to the question of growth so mm -hmm. for marx Capitalism is a system which is geared towards generating and realizing surplus value. And that surplus value which has been realized is plowed back into the system, which increases the scale of the production process. And thereby, growth is understood by, by Marx as, a, as the size of the flow of value through the capitalist economy over time. And over time, year after year, the size of value increases. And it increases for two reasons. One, more surplus value is extracted from the workers because the working class population, which is employed by capital, increases. They become more productive. And second, because of technological change, 
commodities are sold more quickly. So the speed with which value traverses the whole process and comes back in monetary form to the hands of the capitalist to be reinvested once again, that speed increases over time. So as more surplus values uh, extracted and as it is realized in a speedier fashion, the system grows over time. So that was how Marx understood growth. The final thing I would say is that Marx understood capitalist growth as a deeply contradictory process, which mm. had, which, which had the possibility of being interrupted at various points. And the interruption of this generation and circulation and realization of surplus value is what Marx calls the period of crisis. So the crisis can happen if a lot of surplus value has been produced and for some reason the commodities are not being able to be sold. So all that surplus value which was produced is not being realized. If that happens, then in the next period, capitalists will reduce their investment and a lot of workers will, will lose their jobs and the demand for goods and services produced will fall down further and the economy can then move into a crisis. So that can be one way in which crisis emerges. Another way in which crisis can emerge, emerge and, and interrupt the growth process is if there is conflict in the workplace whereby the capitalist system is not able to generate enough surplus value. And that might then uh, present itself or manifest itself as a fall in the, the rate of profit that is realized on investment because less and less surplus value is being generated. So Marx understood the capitalist growth process deeply as a contradictory process. Right. It's, it's for someone coming to this stuff for the first time, it's like in some ways kind of mind-blowing. I think it's one of the most ambitious things within kind of the entire Marxian research pro project uh, of trying to understand uh just how the entire system itself is actually growing over time and, and, and in what ways it's actually growing and um, what are the causal inducements of... Um, and also the fact that uh, discontinuities, um, the fact that it is an anarchic system where, you know, capitalist A over here and capitalist B over here uh, might be in conversation, but most likely are not, and they don't need to be in conversation. Um, and every capitalist uh, in, in the capitalist economy... Um, doesn't need to be in conversation saying, I'm going to make this much of this commodity and you're going to make that much of that commodity because I need you to make that much for my inputs. Um, they show up to the market and they hope that they they have what they need. And, you know, contracts develop over time. It's not, you know, they don't live in a bubble. But the fact is that, like, there is no central planning that actually occurs. And yet the economy itself still grows um, and that discontinuities can be a crisis, like you're saying. It could also be um, sometimes it's an opportunity that a uh, capitalist looks out and says, oh, look, there's actually more demand here for, for what I'm making. Um, and that's actually a great thing for me. So I'm going to go and increase production. I'm going to go make some more profit. Um, and like, yeah, so it's, it's, it's an incredible kind of uh, analysis. And it's unfortunate that Marx didn't finish. And at some level, you know, it kind of, doesn't matter because hopefully people should be doing that work now. Um, uh, but that it's, uh, you know, so central to this, like you're saying, is still 
the question of profitability. It's still like the this the forward thrust still remains um, capitalists seeking a profit uh, that keeps this anarchic situation moving forward, even if unstable and constantly falling apart and rebuilding itself. It's it's still something that actually we call capitalism as a coherent thing in part because of profitability as like this through line through it. The one thing I think you, you mentioned, and I think our readers should know, is that Marx did not have the time to complete volume two and three. Right. And volume two and three were notes. But so even though he did not complete it, it is important to realize one thing. Before he finalized the draft of volume one, Marx had worked out the whole argument. And so volume one, two and three, Marx had completed and only then he returned to volume one to find, give it the final polish. Right. So even though he didn't complete it, it is fair to assume that he had worked out a lot, lot of the logic and that's why it is important to read volume two and three. And, and, and so, yeah, I mean, that is one thing to keep in mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, turning to uh, maybe Marx's messiest work, which is, again, not his fault. It's he, he tried his best and he wrote a manuscript and then his uh, lifelong uh, companion and, and uh, co-author, um, Frederick Engels, ends up publishing volume three. And it really is a who's who in the capitalist ruling class of, uh, you know, this rogues gallery of how the capitalist class actually uh, distributes the surplus once it's generated. Um, so again, we spent a, lot, a good amount of time discussing where the bulk of new profits and capitalism comes from. But then Marx also describes how it's distributed and um, maybe moreover, uh, the social relations between the ruling class. Um, and this is actually um, just a anecdote of uh, reading through volume three recently. Um, and recognizing that everything he's all of these different segments of the ruling class he's describing still hold up that this is something he's describing in the 1860s and yet it's still highly useful um, both descriptively and analytically moreover in 2022 um, so Marx is not saying that every single capitalist is directly exploiting um, that many of them actually have to bargain with each other to get uh, to secure their cut of the surplus. So could you maybe briefly describe how he makes those divisions and how the surplus, again, it's hard to say brief, but uh, but how, how the surplus is distributed among yeah. capitalist class? Yes, yes that's, that is precisely the argument that Marx tries to present in volume three. And his argument moves in, in, in two steps. In the first step, he is looking at uh, what he calls functioning capitalists. So capitalists who are either directly involved in the production of commodities or capitalists who are involved in ensuring that those commodities are sold. So the first group of capitalists is what he calls industrial capital. And the second group of capital is what he calls commercial capital. So industrial capital directly organizes the production of commodities and then hands it over to commercial capital, who then makes sure it is sold to the, the direct, the final consumers. So on the one hand, you have, let's say, uh, General Motors making the cars, and then you have uh, a group of uh, shops which then sell those cars. So the first would be 
industrial capital, the second would be commercial capital. Now, Marx is very clear that surplus value can only be generated in production. So all of the surplus value that is distributed and redistributed and which we will talk about is all of them are generated in the capitalist production of commodities. So that is the first kind of location to start understanding how the surplus value will then gradually flow through society and end up with as the income stream of different fragments of the non-working class. Now, within the, 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 the group of industrial capitalists, there is one important issue that Marx discusses, which is that different types of producers have different capital intensities. So some production requires a lot of labor per capital, per machine, and some other producers or some uh, other commodities require the opposite. They require much more machines per worker. Mm -hmm. So there is a process by which the total surplus value that has been generated in the production of commodities is in the very first instance redistributed between the different fragments of industrial capital. And why is that necessary? It is necessary to make sure that every capitalist in the long run makes the same average rate of profit. Because if there is a segment of production which generates higher than the average rate of profit, then a lot of capitalists will come into that sector. Mm -hmm. And the, the production and supply of that commodity will rise. Therefore, its price will fall and therefore the rate of profit will fall. So we can visualize this process working itself out over a long period to ensure that every capitalist who is engaged in the production of commodities, no matter which line of production he or she is involved in, whether producing cars or producing computers or producing shirts, everybody gets the same rate of profit. Now that juxtaposed to the fact that production of cars might require much more machines per worker than production of shirts means that there is a first round of redistribution of surplus value mm -hmm. among the industrial capitalists themselves. Mm -hmm. So that's the very first step. So that is then handed over, the commodities which have been produced are handed over to the Walmarts and the Amazons who actually organize the sale of the commodities. So, so Walmart and, and Amazon do not produce anything. They just make sure that the commodities that have been produced are sold. This category of capital is what Marx calls commercial capital. So Marx's second part of the argument is that what happens between industrial capital and commercial capital is a distribution of surplus value. So if total surplus value was generated equal to 100, there is some process by which that 100 is distributed between the producer who actually organized the production and the, the likes of Walmart and Amazon who merely make sure that the commodities are sold. So we have thereby understood the first step of the distribution. Surplus value was generated. Part of it is 
realized by the capitalist who generated it part of it is handed over to the commercial capital because commercial capital is functional because the commercial capital will ensure that the commodity is actually sold because without the commodity being sold the surplus value cannot be realized and that is why commercial capital is able to extract part of the surplus value and that is the source of the enormous profits of amazon and walmart now there the process does not end because amazon walmart and the direct producers like gm need two things one they need to borrow money to finance their investments because often time they do not have all the money they require to expand their production to introduce a new machine to 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 end up and to make more shops or to expand and and the the network of shops mm-hmm. so capitalists end up borrowing from another group of non workers who specialize in lending money to the functioning capitalists and that is what marx calls the representatives of those as money capital mm-hmm. so what happens is that now a process of bargaining happens between functioning capitalists and money capitalists part of the surplus value that has been realized as profit of the producing capitalist or the commercial capitalist has to be handed over to the money capitalist as interest income that is necessary because functioning capitalists need to borrow money from the money capitalists and the final cut comes from a group of non working people who have ownership of natural resources like land now since land is required for capitalist production and think of agriculture that is direct but also think of mines think of real estate think of tourism all of which requires in one way or another natural resources or access to natural resources so owners of natural resources again are able to bargain for a part of the surplus value from the functioning capitalist who will use that natural resource for producing some commodity and selling it at a profit and the part of income that is taken for by the owners of natural resource uh, resources think of land is what marx calls ground rent or we mm. can just call rent so at the end of volume 3 we have really covered all the important segments of the non working people the non working class the ruling class and have understood how the income streams that they live out come from ultimately the unpaid labor of workers the surplus value so the first cut is the industrial capitalist the second cut is the commercial capitalist the third cut is the money capitalist who gets rent and the first two groups broadly get what we call profit and final cut is by owners of natural resources and their income stream which is a part or fragment of the surplus value is known as rent so that is uh, how we kind of marx concludes the analysis by showing how surplus value was generated in volume 1 and how it was realized in volume 2 and then how it was distributed 
and ends up as the income stream of different fragments of the capital, the non-working class in volume three of capital. Right. The very last thing, um, maybe still kind of staying with volume three for a moment, and you've already touched on some of this, um, but, uh, you know, it's it, because of maybe it's omnipresence um, in, within capitalism and maybe also just it's it's maybe the most um, deceptively self-evident uh, social phenomena of capitalism. I think it's worth like staying on the concept of competition and technical change for just a moment. Um, obviously, again, as we've said, the fact that everyone is dependent on markets for their survival in capitalism, either as workers in a labor market or capitalists trying to accumulate a profit within a limited commodity market means that competition is generated from the class structure and that it, it's something that is you must it must be dealt with in one way or another within capitalism. Um, and, uh, and the key thing that comes out of this, uh, of this process of competition is technical change, um, or which is a little jargony, but it's the addition of greater machines and labor saving devices within the work process. Um, and uh, I think there's been a lot of you know, more recent scholarship on competition within kind of the Marxian, um, within Marxian economics. uh, And we don't have to touch on a lot of that. But I do think there is something uh, highly unique about, um, about Marx's theory of competition and technical change as compared to other um, schools of economic thought. Um, And part of this is that it's, it comes out of the kind of the entire classical tradition, but just sticking with Marx, maybe for the moment, um, how how would uh, how how does a Marxist understand competition and technical change in contrast to uh, other uh, economic understandings of these phenomena? Yeah, right. So I think Marx kind of uh, you are absolutely right. Marx always has the class structure in 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 his view when he's uh, theorizing capitalism, and he he makes kind of these two points. One. Of course, there is the important relationship, the all-important relationship between capital and labor. So the contradictory relationship between capitalists and workers. But there is also the contradictory relationship between the individual capitalists or groups of capitals uh, within the whole work, the capitalist class. And the interaction between them is what uh, we can understand as the process of competition. So capitalists individually and as a group are interested in generating and realizing more and more surplus value. Now, since capitalism is not a planned system, each individual capitalist is not always trying to coordinate his or her action with other capitalists. In fact, the opposite is mostly the case. Individual capitalists within one industry, different capitalists or capitalists in one industry versus capitalists in another industry are always trying to compete with each other to outdo the other to generate more profit for himself or herself. Mm-hmm. So, the process of fierce, unrelenting, continuous competition is a, is a fact of life of capitalism. And Marx spends a lot of time understanding, describing and analytically understanding this, this phenomena. So the process of competition, if we think about it, 
between two capitalists the capitalist who is able to reduce the cost of production will be able to win the the competitive struggle why because a individual capitalist he, who produces the same commodity for a lower price for a lower cost will on selling at the going market price be able to generate more surplus value and more profit and thereby by reinvesting that surplus value or profit into the production process will be able to increase the size of his capital base will be able to increase or improve the techniques of production used so in one in one sentence in the competitive struggle the capitalist who is able to reduce the cost of production is going to win the competitive struggle and therefore inbuilt into the logic of capitalism is a need for capitalists to continuously search for newer methods of production which can reduce the cost of production now once we realize this we also need to realize that one of the most important elements of cost for the capitalist producer is the wage cost because labor is one of the most important elements to production and therefore the competitive struggle leads directly to the search for new techniques of production which can reduce the amount of labor used to produce per unit every unit of output mm-hmm. and that is the kind of secret for a tendency that we have observed for long periods of time which is the emergence of labor saving technical change whereby capitalist systems continuously improve on the methods of production by saving labor and increasing the non labor input in in place of labor so the process of competition which is inherent to capitalism thereby leads to a particular feature of technical change so this was a very important part of the analysis of capitalism by uh, marx and what is striking is that empirical evidence for long periods of time and even today completely validate marx's understanding of of the necessity of technical change and the feature of technical change whereby there is a pronounced tendency for labor saving technical change coming into into the into the play mm-hmm. over and over and over so this i find to be a fascinating feature of marx's analysis which is absolutely relevant to understanding the history of capitalist technology and also to understanding the current the current period of of capitalism so maybe just to wrap up um because we've said a lot um and uh i greatly appreciate your time and your insights um maybe you know the fact that uh we didn't actually get really to the second half of your book um which is uh all about es- essentially those things that have been left unfinished since uh marx wrote capital volumes 1 2 and 3 um and the debates that have ensued um the various uh kind of strands or influential kind of points of view within marxism arguing um for different ways of understanding either kind of the marxian um analysis or just kind of um you know taking marxism and trying to use it in the world and trying to make sense of empirical facts and 
Um, could you maybe say what was left unfinished when, uh, when basically when Angles published the last part of of uh, Capital, um, and you know, in just broad brushstrokes, like what the the nagging debates have been within Marxism, um, and are they done? Are we? Do we have Marxism? Is it a full thing yet, or like, are we are we there yet, or uh, are are there going to be more debates in the future? Where where do we go with Marxism? So <clears throat> it's interesting. So uh, right after Volume Three was published, uh, there was a lot of critical attention on a question which has generated uh, a debate right up till today. So it's a debate which starts in the 1890s and it's still going on. It's difficult to say that it it will end. In my opinion, there is a a, a pretty uh, solid, robust, rational response to some of those questions and issues which were left unfinished by Marx. So what what is this question I'm talking about? So in volume three, Marx talks about prices, the, what he calls prices of production are the prices which in the long run will ensure the same average rate of profit for all lines of production of camp- capitalist commodities. Now, Marx had so far done his analysis in terms of value, and we know value is broadly the socially necessary abstract labor time required to produce a commodity. So the question naturally arose, what is the relationship between the value of a commodity and the price of production of a commodity? And Marx tried to give a way to understand these relationships, which worked through the concept of redistribution of surplus value. So here I'll go back to something I said earlier. So Think of the production of cars and the production of, let's say, shirts. Let's say the production of cars is much more capital intensive. So that means that per for every dollar invested in the production of car, less amount, a, a smaller fraction goes to hiring labor power. And if we turn to the production of shirt, for every dollar invested, a larger fraction goes towards hiring labor power. Mm -hmm. Now, if we go with the labor theory of value, what does that imply? It implies that in the production of uh, shirts, more surplus value will be generated than in the production of cars because a larger fraction of every dollar in the production of shirts is used to purchase labor power and labor power is what generates value and out of that value a part of it is taken by the capitalist and therefore more surplus value. Now the question is will a capitalist who is producing cars be content with generating and producing cars if he only makes 10% rate of profit Whereas in the production of shirts, capitalists are making 25% rates of profit. Mm -hmm. Well, that is not going to happen because capitalists who are producing cars will gradually move into producing shirts and they will increase the production of shirts. So therefore, 
when we think of capitalism in a long-term perspective, a good approximation is to think that every line of production will generate the same average rate of profit. Now, if the same average rate of profit has to be generated in the production of cars and shirts, then that necessarily means that the price at which a shirt will sell will be very different from its value and the price at which a car will sell will also be different from its value because only by a redistribution of part of the surplus value generated in the production of shirts and moving it to the product production of, of cars will every unit of capital be able to earn the same rate of profit. So Marx therefore said that his theory suggested that there is necessarily going to be a deviation of the values of commodities and the pr prices of commodities. Mm -hmm. And that is a robust and correct insight. But in working out some of the, the examples, Marx made some algebraic errors. And people who were critical of Marx's general framework caught on to those errors and have claimed ever since that Marx's value theory is internally consistent and that it cannot be corrected. Mm -hmm. So one point of debate which has been there right from 1890s till now is what is known as the transformation problem, which is trying to come up with a, a coherent explanation for the relationship of prices and values. I think there is a very coherent and good way of understanding this relationship. But of course, uh, many scholars disagree. And so the debate continues. So that's one. The second point which has generated enormous debate relates to the question of technical change. And again, it emerges from volume three, because in volume three, Marx had made a very strong claim that the progress of technology in capitalism will necessarily lead to a tendency for the rate of profit to fall. If that happens, that means that capitalism's strength, which is technical change, is also its primary weakness because the, the process of technical change is leading to the rate of profit falling and ultimately that is going to lead to a stagnating or zero growth capitalism because capitalists are not interested in producing if they are not able to make a certain rate of profit. So Marx's claim that there is a tendency for the rate of profit to fall over time in capitalism has again generated enormous debate. Uh, I think there is a there is a fairly good way to resolve the issue. But again, different scholars think differently. And so the debate continues. Mm -hmm. the, uh, so those were two, I think, long standing debates. And I discussed those in the second part of the book. Uh, another issue which has been discussed a lot, which is really uh, not in volume three, but volume one is the question of uh, domestic labor. And a lot of Marxist feminists and feminist scholars have raised that issues. That is, I think, a very important issue has has generated a lot of uh, discussion and debate. The central question is, does domestic unpaid labor 
which happens within the household for care work, for producing food that the family will consume. Does that create value and surplus value? Again, that uh, I think there is a, a way to understand that which is consistent with how Marx understood and how we can broadly understand capitalism, but many scholars disagree and, and there is a, a long-standing debate. So I think those three I would I would point out as important long-standing debates that will probably keep going. It, we don't really have an end, uh, but there are fairly good ways to answer those questions. Well, if you want the answers to those questions, you should buy the book. Um, it's it really is a, a fantastic book. I, I really think it's it's like probably the best introduction that the left has uh, to to approach Marxist economics right now, um, and that if more people read it, uh, we would all have a, a, a very solid floor to be able to actually answer these and further questions in in more nuance and in more complexity and. Um, thank you. I guess part of this is saying thank you for writing the book. I appreciate uh, your contribution. Um, hopefully, Cambridge will be nice enough to release a paperback at some point soon for people. That is not so crazy expensive. Um, so, you know, just word to Cambridge. But um, thank you so much for your time, Deepankar Basu. Um, uh, people should check out his new book. Again, the, the title is The Logic of Capital, An Introduction to Marxist Economic Theory. Uh Thank you. Thank you for having me.